our society is depending on the fact that most big companies are poison and kryptonite to founders, <laughs> right? We need them to be dissatisfied and leave and go blow up uh, and start the creative destruction cycle again. But so I, I, more what, so more big companies that they hate can be formed. <laughs> absolutely, but they're not going to work at those companies no, no, not, if they right. get their wish. The paradox of entrepreneurship is if you get your wish, you end up building something that you would never want any part of. Yeah, that's right. Right? That's right. Yeah. Friction. It's a huge psychological burden. Without friction, we would not have fire and we would not have sparks. I gotta get a knife. <laughs> I gotta hide it. Oh, I end up spending a lot of time ruminating. I'm Bob Sutton. I'm an organizational psychologist and Stanford professor. I'm fascinated by what you might call organizational friction. Uh, essentially that feeling of getting stuck in the muck that frustrates people, that wears them out, and in the end makes it harder to do their jobs and can undermine organizations. But I've invited some of the smart people I know who are going to help us understand what friction is, why it happens, how to get rid of bad friction and introduce good friction, and uh, together, maybe we'll learn a little bit more about this process. I don't know all the answers, but hopefully this is a useful learning adventure for all of us. This is the Friction Podcast. We've invited my friend, Michael Deering, to join us on today's podcast. Michael is one of the most imaginative people I know. He's the very definition of the old saying, um, looking at something else but seeing something different. He's also got um, experience initially in his career at the beginning in mostly large companies, Filene's Basement, a famous now defunct Boston department store, the Walt Disney Corporation. He was head of eBay North America. But in the last decade, he switched gears and focuses in particular on funding early stage startups. Michael offers many lessons about organizations in general and friction in specific. But if I was gonna focus on one thing, it's this notion that um, when somebody is a leader, especially of a small startup, they have a clear sense whether they're right or wrong about what we're gonna do and what we're not gonna do. He's got that sort of clear focus, and to him, that's the, one of the key reasons why a startup can move so quickly with less friction than a large corporation. Nice to see you, Michael. Thank you for the invitation. Oh, it's just great to have you here. One of the things I've heard you argue is that uh, uh, I've even heard you say the only or certainly one of the main advantages that startups have over big companies is just the ability to move fast. Yeah, velocity is everything. Okay, velocity is everything. Um, but um, even among startups, there's some that um, are pretty good about velocity. Yeah. And others that uh, for some reason people will act like they're stuck in muck. Yeah. So... What are some of the ways, some of the symptoms, the way that you've seen that play out? And uh, have you ever helped the leaders of the companies get out of the muck? You know, uh, you think about what could slow a startup down. It's not that many people. They uh -huh. all know each other's names. They could fit around a table, should go lickety split, right? Well, it doesn't. If people don't sit down and say, here's what I'm working on, what are you working on? Here's what we're all working okay. on. Is that the right stuff? The other thing that is really true about startups is, you know, inside a startup, laziness 
is indistinguishable from sabotage. So low, huh? low amount of work output per, per unit of time, and you can measure time on a day, an uh, hour, a week, whatever. But if the, if the velocity of work, if the, if the output per person isn't, isn't high and growing and, uh-huh. and people aren't obsessed with that, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a company that was going through that and a company that actually had an active saboteur inside the company. So it's a, it's not just a nice to have this velocity idea. Um, it's an absolute um, must have. What do you do to maintain that hungriness or urgency so that uh, laziness doesn't become a source of friction? Well, the main, uh, the main thing I try to do is uh, scan for that at the time I invest. Mm-hmm. And so I have to make a, I have to make a bet. When I meet somebody, when things are really desperate, when they really mm-hmm. have nothing or close to nothing, how are they going to respond to a time when they maybe have fifteen, twenty, fifty million dollars in the bank account, and 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 how are they going to transmit those values of frugality, frugal ambition? We're not we're not relaxing uh-huh. the ambition constraint. Uh-huh. We're saying how do you be frugal and ambitious even when you're when you've got a lot of money? So are you saying one way I would? Uh, when you uh, fund founders, you like people who are insecure enough that uh, they'll never quite feel satisfied and they'll always be pushing. Well, that's a harsh way to put it, but uh, <laughs> but probably yes. You know, I think I'm it's. Not, a, I, I don't mean, mean uh, harsh. You know, but... my 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 job. Uh, uh, you know, I'm a custodian of somebody else's wealth. Uh-huh. Universities, endowments, foundations, research hospitals give me money. Right, right, right. And so I know if I do my job poorly, I can't send them back multiples. Of what they give right, me, right, right. and if I can't do that, financial aid budgets change, um, research agendas right, change, right. The, the 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 foundations of civilization are at stake for what we do here in Silicon right. Valley, and and so it's imperative that we try to use that judgment about who gets the money and who and 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 what what standard do we hold them to, and a certain kind of insecurity seems to be valuable, absolutely, absolutely, and an awareness of uh, whose money they're spending. They're not spending rich people's money. Uh-huh. This isn't the question. I mean, some of them are, but uh-huh. but but the vast majority of the money comes from the institutions that guard civilization: universities, hospitals, foundations, oh, that's museums. That's fabulous. So, how do you tell the difference between times when you actually have to stop and think and figure what the heck is going on? Yeah. Versus times when people are just being lazy. Yeah, you understand what I'm talking about? It's the difference yeah. between really the, thinking and yeah. laziness. Yeah. I I think that, you know, there's a there's a right there's a right sized version of thinking for uh-huh. the scale of company you're at. So for example, with a ten person startup, uh-huh. which is a very common case for me, the product prioritization process, the decision process where they decide what we're gonna build into the uh-huh. software and when it's gonna ship, that process should not take more than a few hours. At a huge company okay. where there's a competition for resources and hopefully a very robust set of competition for the resources, that process could take much longer. So in my in my world, a 10-person mm-hmm. startup that's having a process around uh, what are we going to build and when are we going to ship it, um, there's got to be some moment where the whole group gets together to generate ideas. And that's the, you know, yeah. the D school, they talk about the front end of the funnel being nice and wide open. Right, right. This expansive open process where anything can be suggested. Mm-hmm. But the next part of the process is really critical for that leader, for her or him uh-huh. to say, okay, of these 96 things that we've come up with, here are five that I think are particularly strategic okay. for us. And so that's why I'm going to put those towards the 
the top of the list. In 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 uh, the D school class, Perry and I used to teach. We used to call that the editor in chief. Uh-huh. In my day to day job as an investor, that's usually the founder or or the the CEO. Uh, but somebody has to take that huge volume of suggestions and declare, here's what we're actually going to work on from that. Yeah, I, one of um, my favorite examples, and and I. And I'm somebody who is not prone to um, do hero worship about Steve Jobs, but still, what he did when he came back to Apple, they had about 100 pieces of hardware. Mm-hmm. Within a year, he'd gotten rid of every one of them and started new f- four new ones. Yeah. That's editing, man. Yeah, <laughs> so- editing, editing is a key part of the job. The other part of the job is removing internal blockers, right? It's the leader's job. Uh-huh. And again, she or he has the superpower of reaching into the to the you know Andy Grove's black box idea of you get inputs, you have a black box process and outcomes, happiness and revenue. Uh-huh. <laughs> he or she can reach into that black box and say, you know, we're not actually going to do it that way because that way uh-huh. is slowing down the launch of this product. We're going to do it this way. And so the, the, the way to resolve that tension between output, uh, uh-huh. output velocity and uh, internal friction, the, uh-huh. the, the anxiety and pain that mm-hmm. sometimes goes with moving really quickly, is for the leader to be very aware of, like, where's the blockers? Why is marketing taking three weeks to get that okay. homepage redone? And why is sales telling me it'll just be another couple of weeks before we can get an update on something? There's probably some blocker that, that the CEO or the leader can remove or change. It, it is funny because uh, also implied in that is as you start reaching scale, there are certain things you need to do that uh, make um, founders very uncomfortable because they take so long and there's so much hierarchy. But I I can't figure out any way to have a an organization, let's take the size of Procter & Gamble or, Toy, or Toyota or something. I don't understand how they can do what they do without having departments and process and specialized roles. And even though you and I probably aren't very happy in situations like that, yeah. I don't understand how they operate at scale without having a bunch of things that drive founders nuts. Well, they have to, and that's precise. We're depending on it. You know, We're depending... Our society is depending on the fact that most big companies are poison and kryptonite to founders. <laughs> when you think about uh, friction, especially dysfunctional friction, what comes to mind? How would you define it? I, I think the dysfunction comes from the wrong types of friction and uh, the absence of grease, really. I mean, you think about it, there's there's some amount of creative tension, which is nice to have in organizations. Uh-huh. And somebody I, I got to watch up close at the Walt Disney Company, Mike Leisner, uh, and his team of uh, 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 executives in the strategic planning department were famous for injecting a certain amount of creative tension hmm. and friction into the company, especially around big investments. Mm-hmm. And the purpose was that by setting up this, this tension and friction, between the corporate mm-hmm. gatekeepers and the business units who wanted to grow, 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 mm-hmm. they would, we, the company overall would arrive at better decision-making. So whether it was, should ESPN launch a magazine? Should we acquire uh-huh. Winnie the Pooh for $850 million? Uh, or should we open a theme park in Shanghai? Those decisions all went through this, by design, adversarial, friction-laden okay. process. And think of it like devil's advocacy, you know, when they want to canonize somebody in Rome, they have somebody stand up and give the best arguments why this is a terrible idea. And Michael Eisner subscribed to that same thinking when it came to corporate investments. So um, am I reading behind or beneath the lines too much? 
uh, that you think that this is a healthy thing when it's done right? Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a great thing. It's not so great for the individuals involved. I mean, I had people scream at me and throw things at me at Disney. Uh, and and no one ever threw anything at me at eBay, but I got shit my more than my fair share of of dressing downs. It's uh it's got to come with some shock absorbers though, uh-huh. because if you don't shock absorb it with um uh clear rules of engagement mm-hmm. or uh you know, specific uh uh sanction from the CEO, it turns into a pretty poisonous environment pretty quickly. So you got to disagree but do it in, in at least a somewhat civilized way. That's right. Yeah, and both sides have to understand that the other side's just doing their job. It's it's what they're asked to do. It's their role in the process. In some ways it's their role in theater and you mm-hmm. can't you can't get mad at somebody as a person for playing a role really well. Okay. So so Michael, you talk about this fascinating notion that if you want to have a successful creative culture. What are some of the rules of engagement that make make that actually work? What can a leader do to make that happen or a team do? I think there's a bunch of shock absorbers that they need to they need to install on the team, you know, simple things like all hands meetings where you can actually ask real questions. Mm-hmm. Um, another another shock absorber that I really like is a transparent product roadmap process. No matter whether you're an old company or a small com- or a new company, small or big, you're building products and those products mm-hmm. are changing and you should be very very transparent about how they're changing and why they're changing so that everybody can get on the same page with respect to the the the, the product strategy of the company. The, another shock absorber that comes up a lot, I think, is postmortems. When something is done and decided, or when something is done, decided, and didn't go well, uh-huh. uh, it's 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 really miraculous when a leader or several leaders can stand up and say, "Here's what I observed in that last episode. Here's some things I think we could get better on. Here's some things I think we did well. Most important message." We're on the right track. Uh-huh. Simple things. It's kind of sad that the quality bar is really low in general management, but uh-huh. heck, I'll take a low bar uh, <laughs> in this case. And uh, these simple things alone would put you in that in that upper upper tier. You know, Joseph Schumpeter, who coined that term "creative destruction," mm-hmm. and really credit to entrepreneurs with the blossoming of capitalism. Um, so entrepreneur worship, totally okay. Uh-huh. But entrepreneurs, the the spark of genius, it actually doesn't catch fire unless you have general management. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's imperative, especially given where we are in the world where entrepreneurs uh, are driving the discussion in so many ways, that we pair those entrepreneurs with the kind of general management that helps huh. them scale. So if you look at the the fundamental the fundamental thing that's changed in the last two hundred years on Earth, uh-huh. it's industrialization, right? For for thousands of years, our GDP per capita was flat. Then suddenly, at the end of the nineteen, uh, pardon me, the end of the eighteenth century, it took off like a rocket. It's like we found an on switch for the whole planet, and that on switch was the marriage of the creative entrepreneurial genius of founders plus the energy sources that could make their machines go at outrageous scale, plus the general managers who could say, how in the heck do I get tens of thousands of people across half a continent to work together? And so I come back and say, look, we didn't invent this problem Mm -hmm. in Silicon Valley. So mostly in this conversation and and even the word friction, which is sort of pejorative, uh, we uh, talk about it as if it's bad, but uh, there are times when um, making simple things to do harder is actually better. Can you think of any of any times when friction is good? 
Well, physical retail was based for a long time on the premise that, you know, exit through the gift shop increases sales, right? So <laughs> so if I and, – and I learned a lot of this thinking from uh, Paco Underhill and how he studied – uh-huh. The, he was sort of a, a he is a uh, uh, the sort of the leading sociologist uh, and ethnographer on uh, how people shop, uh-huh. and um, he explained to me the the magic of the first I think he called it the first twenty or thirty feet inside the store uh-huh. is a slowdown zone. I need to get you from the door, which uh-huh. you had a very you had an orient you had a goal orientation to get through the door into the store. Mm-hmm. Now I want to slow you down because I got a lot to show you. And I might slow you down with um, a physical display of merchandise. I might slow you down with a slightly more meandering path through the store. Uh But I need that time with you to tell you the story. You see this in stores like Ikea, Uh um, where you sometimes may feel lost in the store. You see it in in some specialty stores that do a really nice job of just smacking you with the abundance of what's there. Mm -hmm. Sephora comes to my mind, you know. For some shoppers, Sephora is a destination with a specific item you're looking for. But uh, that store is designed in a way to engage you across multiple different so parts you'll of the store. So you buy extra stuff you hadn't ever sure. planned on buying. Sure. Or maybe you maybe you won't buy now, but you'll have listened to my story and you'll be more prone to buy next time. Okay. So I think there's there's some of that. I think there's probably some examples in, in web design where mm-hmm. – um, I wouldn't necessarily call it slowing down, but the idea of infinite scrolling in a mm-hmm. mobile shopping experience, the fact that you always wonder what's the, uh, behind the next scroll. So if you keep swiping up, uh-huh. you're going to find more and more stuff to look at. So if you had a magic wand and you could subtract one thing from your average company as it grows from two to two or three um, founders to four or 500 people, yeah, what would you add and what would you subtract if you had a magic wand? Some people call this uh, OKRs. Some people call it management by objectives. Mm. There's a lot of different names for it. But in Andy Grove's high output management, he describes what objectives and key results look like inside uh-huh. a, a healthy company. That's my ad. Uh-huh. If you, you know, objectives and key results, which is a way of basically just saying, here's what we're all working on and here's how right. we're going to decide whether we're on track for everybody in the company or every team in the company or even just in the company overall. That is what I would. Mm-hmm do the magic wand addition. The magic wand subtraction would be the fear and anxiety that keeps people from speaking up. Oh, that's the, interesting. The, the fear and anxiety that goes into the mid-level person or the junior person's head when she or he thinks something doesn't quite feel right, mm-hmm. but I seems like they're smart people. Maybe they know something I don't and they're afraid to ask. They're afraid to speak up. And the difference between organizations that cultivate that fear and anxiety mm-hmm. versus companies that help eliminate it, they thrive. It is interesting because just one of the, the general themes that Huggy and I, it really, we've been talking about this for uh, 20 years and it's not our idea we saw from somebody else. This idea that an organizational life, that silence is not golden, yeah. especially uh, the, when, when you move away from the people who have the most power. If, right. there is, if there is silence among everybody else, it's a really bad sign. Yeah, absolutely. Agree completely. 
And, you know, I think there are shock absorbers that management can put in place very easily, whether that's an anonymous Q&A process. Um, you hear companies that have like a, a mandatory all hands where people ask tough questions and they're not punished for asking tough questions. They're actually a, a rich part of the culture. Oh, that's interesting. Thanks for joining us, Michael. It was a delight as always. Thanks for having me, Bob. So there you have it, the amazing Michael Deering. He has many interests. Today's focus on how wonderfully fast and agile little companies can be, um, I think is a takeaway for all of us. And um, I hope that some of those principles can also be applied to where you work. Um, If you want to learn more about Michael's really remarkable perspective, he's made a bunch of these little, very high-quality movies on everything from how to run a meeting to pricing to the history of capitalism. And uh, check it out at harrisonmetal.com. Please join us on our mission to improve organizations and work by sharing your stories, tips and tricks, all those lessons you've gleaned from the front lines of the workplace. To reach out, please email us at stvp-ecorner at stanford.edu or find us on Twitter at eCorner. Also, please rate and review us on iTunes to help spread the word about this podcast. Next week, we have Dominic Price from Atlassian. He's head of R&D, and he's a work futurist. Uh, Dom is going to talk about some interesting topics, the messiness of work, chaos, scaling with small rituals, and, and he's also going to touch on strategies to create and maintain nimble teams. The Friction Podcast is a Stanford eCorner original series brought to you by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program and the Designing Organizational Change Project. Friction is produced by Eli Shell and Rachel Jilkowski. Michael Pena and Monica Yort are the outreach team. Danielle Stusi is our designer. Sarah Khan and Devorce Sankovic provide web support. I'm Bob Sutton. Thanks again for listening to our podcast. Here is today's final tangent. Capitalism, specifically the American version of capitalism, uh, it, it it's the best thing we ever invented. And I say that because... Um, I am acutely aware that the only way we can pay for the kind of civilization we want is to have tremendous increases in output per person and that wealth that accumulates. And then after it accumulates, it compounds. Um, That wealth is what pays for things like a political movement that decides that abolition of slavery is the right thing to Hmm. do. Um, uh, Arts and entertainment uh, that, Um, people can be proud of, uh, educational opportunities for people, whether they can pay or not pay, Um, uh, medical care that allows lifespans to go from, you know, an expected death date of, you know, your late 30s, early 40s, all the way up to, what are we at the mid 70s, late 70s Uh now, Uh, infant mortality collapsing, uh, uh, calories per person that's available, uh, blowing through the roof. This system that we've created... um, it uh, it powers that wealth uh, machine, and it powers all of the industrial wealth that's created cycles back and funds all of the good things that we love about civilization, uh, including this room and this building that we're sitting in uh, uh, at Stanford. 
the the tricky part is that in the process of doing all that creating, it destroys quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, it it there are people who lose their jobs. There are people who lose their homes. There are people who find themselves with a skill set that's totally not in demand in the market. Um, capitalism is also a vehicle for some really unsavory human beings to, to yep. make money. And so I'm not saying at all that uh, money is the thing. I'm saying civilization is the thing and capitalism is the engine the that engine. gets us there. So the self-cleaning part, I think that every bad thing about human nature was invented long before capitalism. <laughs> and so it's really only in the last couple hundred years that we now have the means and the, uh, and the uh, will to say, you know what, that way of treating people that we invented uh-huh. tens of thousands of years ago is bullshit. And we're going to stop doing it. Uh-huh. And we're going to stop doing it because we're going to shame companies into not behaving that way, or we're going to raise money for a political movement, or we are going to use free speech, which was you know, a value that uh, is relatively new mm-hmm. uh, in the civilized world to, to speak up and shine a light on these problems. So I think it's a self-cleaning oven. Now, the problem with if you've ever had a self-cleaning oven or used one, uh-huh. two things about it. It gets really fucking hot yeah, while right. it's going, so there's <laughs> it a lot of there's a lot of heat created, uh, and but that's the cleaning mode, and it's long. You have to like have patience for like I can't use that <laughs> oven for like four hours while it's on cleaning mode, and those two things are true here too, right? <laughs> it gets really painful for a lot of people while it's in cleaning mode. It takes way too long. The fact that we're still dealing with the threads and the scraps of American slavery today. Uh, long after the Civil War is a great I- exhibit in that, you know, to, to make that case. These things take forever to get better, but they do get better. 